I believe the next thing we have is the sermon. And you wonder, is this a seeker-friendly church? Um, <laughs> of course. Uh, our topic today is circumcision. And um, you, you invited all your friends, didn't you? Okay. This, I, I, I have never studied harder for a message than this. Um, ordered two books, uh, read all the theologians that I could get my hands on, uh, rewrote the sermon three times, and here we go. Um, why is it entitled circumcised? Because the word circumcised appears ten times in the text. So I'm just being faithful to the text. All right. So let me give you an overview of where we are, and then we will get right down uh, to business here. Um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Most people would agree that the first 11 chapters are kind of a separate section from 12 through 50. The first 11 chapters kind of give us the, the history of the world. God creates uh, the world in chapter 1, and he places Adam and Eve, the first humans, in a perfect environment, in paradise. They are perfect. They are sinless. The world is unmarred with sin. He gives them a test whether they will eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't do it. Trust me. They rebel against him. They sin, and sin enters into the world, right? And we see that death enters into the world. And we see that murder enters into the world. Cain kills his brother Abel. And Lamech kills a man. And things get so bad that God has to flood the world. And he destroys all of humanity except for one family, Noah, and his family. But uh, we see that Noah is a sinner also. And his sons or grandsons, depending how you interpret it, um, are involved in, in a, a, a wicked, sinful lifestyle. Well, humanity fills the earth again. Um, I shouldn't say it fills the earth. They actually all congregate in Babel. God tells them to, to spread out, and their rebellion against God is, no, we're not going to do what you tell us. We're going to congregate in Babel. It'll work better here in Babel. Um, so God has to spread them over the earth by confusing their language, okay? Um, so what we see again and again and again is sin and man either individually or in mass rebelling against God. Now, that's the first 11 chapters. But then, kind of out of the blue, God reaches down and points to one man who's living in Ur, in Iraq. And he, uh, he says to, to this man, Abram, um, I am choosing you. Now go to this other land. Trust me. Follow me. And that's the start of God's rescue plan for humanity. Now God makes a number of promises to this man, Abram. 
Uh, and you could say all of redemptive history, actually the, the rest of the story of the Bible, Old and New Testament, flows from the promises that God makes to this man, Abram. Uh, all the nations, he says, are going to be blessed through you and your seed. And we know that the seed is, it's kind of a, a, a double meaning. There's the initial seed, his physical descendants, that leads to one seed, the Christ, the Messiah, who dies on the cross to pay for the sins of those who will believe in him. And now we become the seed of Abraham. So seed can have uh, two or three different meanings depending on the context. But really, the entire Bible flows from this promise that God makes to Abraham. Okay? Now, here we are in chapter 17. In chapter 17, God reviews and renews and expands the covenant with Abraham. And in chapter 17, God um, makes a promise to Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham's spiritual seed, that's us, to his physical seed, that's Israel, to his wife Sarah, to Isaac, who is yet to be born, and he talks about Ishmael. Okay? Now, here's where it gets somewhat complicated and controversial. Some would say chapter 17 is just one big covenant. Right? I see one paragraph in the middle, 9 through 14, as a separate covenant. I should say this. Whether you want to call it a separate covenant or a distinct part of the bigger Abrahamic covenant, I see God making a distinct covenant with Israel. All right, and we'll get to that. But here's how I'm going to lay it out. We're going to look at the different sections uh, of, of the promises and the covenant that God makes uh, to Abraham. All right, so first we're going to see that God speaks to Abraham and his spiritual seed. So Genesis 17, the first two verses say this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, this is the ESV. If you were to, uh, to just read this straight out, it looks like God is saying, um, you're walking before me and you're being blameless is the requirement before so that I may make my covenant between me and you. It seems to be saying, you need to walk perfectly, and then I will make a covenant with you. Now, this is a little strange, because so far we have seen that all of God's dealings with Abraham have been unconditional. God promises that he will do all the work, yet here there seems to be a condition Walk before me and be blameless so that I may make my covenant between me and you. And it's, it also seems a little strange because hasn't he already made his covenant with him? Now, um, I am not a Hebrew scholar. 
okay? But I do have resources. Now let me show you what John Salehammer says. Salehammer translates the Hebrew this way. He says, walk before me and you will be blameless and I will make my covenant. In other words, walk before me would be continue to have faith in me. And just like in chapter 15, remember, Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. He imputes righteousness to Abraham. Salehammer would take it that way. Walk before me, continue to have faith in me, and you will be blameless. Why? Because I will impute righteousness to you, and I will make my covenant with you. Okay? Um, fellow at uh, Moody, Dr. Wexler, translates it this way. Walk before me and be blameless since I have made my covenant with you. In other words, rather than translating it as a future tense, it's a past tense. Walk before me and be blameless since I have already made my covenant with you. In other words, the call to be blameless and walk sinlessly is not the basis of the covenant. It's, it's the other way around. The covenant is the basis of the call to walk blamelessly. In other words, since I've already made this promise, this unconditional promise, now what you, your response, Abraham, should be to walk blamelessly. And at least from the context... That's where I would lean, okay? Since God has already made his covenant, and since everything so far has been unconditional, this translation seems to be the best, okay? And so far, we see that everything God has promised is unconditional to Abraham, all right? Now, this is a promise to Abraham and his spiritual seed. Bless you. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Okay. Um, Who's his spiritual seed? That's us. It says, then Abraham fell on his face. He's 99. Two times in this chapter, the poor guy falls on his face. Right? Um, So he's 99, falls on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, um, we know that he is the father of, uh, of Israel. Israel literally flows, physically flows from Abram. But here he's referring to a multitude of nations. That has to be referring to those who are his descendants by faith. Right? In Galatians it talks about the fact that the seed, Christ, comes. And all who believe in the seed, Christ, we are descendants of Abraham. And that's what this has to be referring to because... It's a multitude of nations that Abram uh, will be the father of. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, this is interesting. Um, Abram means exalted father, and Abraham means father of a multitude. So for 86 years, of Abram's life, he's childless. And people go, oh, what's your name? Exalted Father. Oh, your children must think you're awesome. How many do you have? None. So finally, he gets a a, a son, Ishmael. And God now changes his name to Father of a Multitude. And people go, wow, you must have a ton of kids. How many do you have? One illegitimate child. Right? 
Why does God give him the name father of a multitude? Because he's, he's going to have a lot of children. Well, not, not necessarily. His descendants will multiply. And then we who believe in Christ are considered to be uh, his descendants. So he is a father of a multitude of nations. Right? Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, plural, and kings shall come from you. Now, since he's speaking about his spiritual descendants, I don't think kings here is simply referring to the kings of Israel. Those are included, but I think it's referring to you know, every leader since the time of Christ who has believed in Christ. Um, those are the kings that flow from Abraham. Okay, Now, um, Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that word offspring is seed. Okay, So you, if you believe in Christ, you are a descendant, an offspring of Abraham. And that's what this section of chapter 17 is talking about. Now, a controversial verse. Uh, oh, no, this, is, this one actually isn't. Uh, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Here's the controversial one. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. Now, here's where dispensationalists and covenant theologians battle. Back in the prayer room, we were talking about this, and uh, all the questions came out, well, what's, what's really going on here? Um, but dispensationalists say this, this is the land of Abraham's sojourning. It's Canaan. It's the land of Israel. It's in the news all the time. Right? And that is an everlasting possession to the Jews. But the covenant theologians come back and they say, wait a minute, we're still in this paragraph dealing with, uh, with Abraham having a multitude of nations. This isn't talking about his physical descendants. This is talking about his spiritual descendants. Therefore, they would interpret Canaan not as the plot of land over uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, but they would would say Canaan is code language for the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, in Romans, Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the land of Canaan, no, of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land of Canaan. No, they shall inherit the earth. Travis, that's blessed are the meek, not the meek, sorry. His last name is Meeks. Um, so let, let the dispensationalists and the covenant theologians argue this one out. Pastor Brian, what do you believe? I believe we should move on to the next part, is what I believe. Now, um, next, this next section is where Abraham, uh, God addresses Abraham and his physical seed. Now, this is clearly being spoken to Israel. 
And what I want you to see here is up to this point, God has made nothing but unconditional promises to Abraham concerning both his physical descendants and his spiritual descendants. Now, God is clearly introducing some conditional language here. He is introducing a two-way covenant. God does his part, but now Israel needs to keep their part or they're out of the covenant. And this is the covenant of circumcision. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So um, you go, where do you get the idea of of a two-way covenant? You keep it or you're out of it, okay? You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The only way you can bro- break a covenant is if it's conditional. All right? Um, now, you go, why is, why is that important? Well, there are those who try to make circumcision into kind of like a sacrament, like baptism or the Lord's Supper. You do it as a result of being in the covenant, uh, but it's not something you do to be in the covenant. It's not a work. This is clearly a work, all right? Um, Now, why did God, of all the things, why did God give circumcision to the Jewish people? Let me give you three quick answers. One, to set them apart as a distinct people. To give them a physical mark that distinguished them from the surrounding nations. Number two, to give them a physical illustration of what still needed to take place in their heart. We'll, We'll talk about that in just a second. Okay. And number three, and here's where it gets somewhat controversial, God laid circumcision on the physical seed of Abraham, on the Jews, to begin the process of putting them under the burden of the law. Okay? I believe God gave the Jews not only the Mosaic Law 430 years later, but he's beginning to put them under the burden of the law. Now, let me explain. Three points here. Point one, the New Testament clearly considers circumcision a work of the law. Again, there are those uh, who would say, no, 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 circumcision, that's just a sacrament. It's not a work of the law. The whole book of Galatians argues that circumcision is a work of the law that is not necessary for salvation. Remember when we studied Galatians? Here uh, in Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in 
Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The whole point is you are not justified by works, works of the law. Well, how do we know that he's talking about circumcision? The whole book is about circumcision. In fact, he clearly says this in Galatians 5, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, and you could say to be saved, to be justified, right, that he's obligated to keep the whole law circumcision is tied to the whole law of Moses. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Not to get too graphic, um, basically in, in the Abrahamic covenant, God is saying, if you don't cut it off, you will be cut off from your people. And Paul is saying, if you do cut it off, you will be cut off from Christ. Placing circumcision in the category of a work of the law. I don't know why people get so confused about this. Oh, it's not a... It is a work of the law. Now, here's where another controversial statement. The Mosaic Covenant was a national conditional covenant making Israel's occupation of the land, not their salvation, but their occupation of the land, dependent upon obedience. Okay? Um, I believe that the law, the Mosaic covenant, was a conditional covenant. Not for salvation but to be blessed by God and to stay in the land. Okay? Um, a lot of people want to say, oh, all of God's covenants are gracious covenants. Well, the first covenant, don't eat from this tree, was not a gracious covenant. It was a covenant of obedience. I believe the, the, the majority of the Abrahamic covenant is a gracious covenant. The Davidic covenant is a gracious covenant. The Noetic covenant is a gracious covenant. The New Covenant is a gracious covenant. The Mosaic covenant is not a gracious covenant. There's grace in it. The sacrificial system points to Christ. But the basic thing is obey and you get to stay in the land. Disobey and you get kicked out of the land. You go, where do you get this? Is this new? Is this your own theology? This is historically what Baptists have, have believed. Okay, this is uh, Baptist theology. Bought two books this week, or in weeks past, and studied up on this. Okay, now, third point is this. The co pretty, pretty impressive, huh? You like that? Um, the covenant of circumcision began the process of placing Israel under the law, not for salvation, but for occupation, to demonstrate the need for the coming seed. Why did God drop the law on the people of Israel? Well, in one sense, it's his will. It's, it's his will that he wants them to follow. But in another sense, to show them their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. You know... Um, my son Josh has an English class, and the first week 
the teacher gave them their final. And they all failed. That's a smart teacher. Why did he give them their final the first day? So they would fail. Why? So they would understand their need for the class. God gave Israel the law. Yep, the Ten Commandments and all those other laws. Why? So they would fail. Why? To show them their need for a Savior. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since, here's the key, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The teacher gave Josh the final to show him his ignorance. God gave the Jewish people the Mosaic law to show them their sin so they would turn to the Savior. And then as we watch them, as we watch God pick a people and give them all the advantages, give them a land, give them a law, give them a priesthood, give them all these things, and we see them fail, we should say, well, if they can't earn God's approval and stay in the land by keeping the law, what hope do we have? What must I do to be saved? Is there a way I can be saved? And then we hear the gospel, that Christ died to pay for our sins, and we trust in him. So, um, here's here's the conditional nature of the law. In Deuteronomy 28, it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And Deuteronomy 28 is a horrendous chapter. It's verse 15 through 68, listing all the curses that will come upon Israel. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your herds, the young of your flock. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you until it has consumed you, will strike you with wasting disease, with, with fever, inflammation, fiery heat, with drought, with blight and mildew. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your dead body shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. The Lord will strike you with boils, tumors, scabs, and the itch. Ooh, you don't want the itch. Madness, blindness, and confusion of mind and grievous boils. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. He will lead. Remember, Babylon came in and led them away. Why? Because they didn't keep the condition of the law. Now, practically, you go, this is all interesting, this whole circumcision thing. Thanks, Pastor Brian. But what, how does this apply to me? How this applies to you is, can you learn from Israel? They could not keep the law. And they were cursed. I'll ask you my question that I always ask. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? And your answer is, well, I'm not that bad of a person. 
or I don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, but I keep them pretty well. That's why you should let me in. You are under the curse of the law. You will go to hell. If your confidence, if you are living in the confidence that you're a pretty good law keeper before God, you are deceived. The whole point of the Old Testament is to show that the people of God can't live under the law. So we should throw up our hands and say, well, if I can't be saved by my law keeping, what can I do to be saved? The good news of the gospel is Jesus died in your place to pay for your sins, and all who trust in him will be saved. That's where all this is leading. Okay. Now, we've got to touch upon a couple more things. Sarah and Isaac. Remember, Abraham and Sarah uh, got together, and, and they said, you know, we're never going to have a baby why don't you, Abraham, get together with the maid, Hagar, and make a baby? And Abraham's like, hey, that's a good idea. Yeah. So he and Hagar make a baby. His name is Ishmael. So what about Ishmael and Hagar and Sarah? Well, God addresses that here. And God said to Abraham, as for Sari, your wife, you shall not call her name Sari, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. There's that word again. Kings of people shall come from her. What does Sarah mean? Sarah means princess. She's royalty. Why? Just as kings will come from you, Abraham, the, the, the descendants are going to come not from Hagar, but from Sarah, princess, your wife, the kings will come from her. Okay? And then, then Abraham fell on his face. Here he is, 99-year-old guy falling on his face again. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, the one who's already born that he might live before you. Here, here's Abraham trying to rescue God again. Okay, So God has to clarify. God said, no. It's not Ishmael. It's not Hagar. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. What's Isaac mean? Laughter. Because Abraham thought this was so funny. <laughs> yeah, right. Old man, going to have a baby. All right, name your kid Laughter. All right. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Okay? So, um, no. Ni nice try with Hagar. Covenant's not with Hagar. It's not with Ishmael. It's with your own wife, Sarah. And you're going to have a baby named Isaac, named Laughter. Right? So what about Ishmael and Isaac? What about Ishmael? Do we just abandon him? Well, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But, but... I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, 
at this time next year. It's it's not going to be through Ishmael. I'm not going to abandon him. I'll take care of him. He'll be a father of a multitude himself. But that's a physical promise. The spiritual promise that I'm going to save the world through your seed is going to come through Sarah and Isaac. This is called election. God can choose whomever he wants. He chooses Isaac. Let me keep moving. Circumcision. The chapter ends with circumcision again. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money. Every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he... uh, Oh, 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 let me go back. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those born with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So he obeys the command to be circumcised. Now, again, why did God give this particular sign to Israel? And I I said three reasons. First one, to set them apart physically. They can be identified as a separate people because of circumcision. Then we said to start the process of placing them under the law. Paul clearly ties circumcision to keeping the entire law in Galatians 5. Okay, But the last reason God gives them this rather painful sign It's a physical illustration of what needed to take place in their hearts spiritually. Okay? Moses says this about circumcision. Deuteronomy 10. The Lord set his heart, and this is is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring, okay, this is his physical offspring, after them, you above all people, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Okay? I am imposing this external physical symbol on you, but it's calling you to an internal reality. It's calling you to repent of your sin and your your uncleanness of heart and to trust in the Lord and to set aside your sin. That's circumcision of the heart. Okay? Now, Let me comment on this whole question 
of how circumcision relates to baptism. There is no example of infant baptism in the Bible. In fact, those, you know, our Presbyterian friends, those who practice infant baptism admit this. When you say, now where is one example, and they'll point to uh, household baptisms, but when you really study the passage, you see that everybody in the household who gets baptized also believes, when you really look at it. And those who are honest will say, yeah, there's no, no example of an infant being baptized in the Bible. But then they'll be quick to come back and say, wait a minute, the argument for infant baptism isn't based on New Testament examples. It's based on parallelism between Old Testament circumcision. Just as babies were circumcised in the Old Testament, babies are to be baptized in the New Testament. Now I would say there's a lot of confusion going on there. First of all, they're equating Israel and the church, and they're equating the physical seed with the spiritual seed of Abraham. But they're messing up what circumcision and baptism really point to. Here's the fatal flaw in the Presbyterian argument for infant baptism. Circumcision is a sign given to the physical descendants of Abraham calling them to circumcise their hearts. Moses clearly says, hey, you know that circumcision that you did to all your little eight-day-old babies? Let that be a sign calling everybody to repent. It's a sign given to call people to still do something in the future. Baptism is a sign given to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who have faith like Abraham, whose hearts have already been circumcised when they placed their faith in Christ. Baptism, when you study it in the New Testament, is not a sign calling you to do something. It's a sign attached to something that has already happened, namely the heart being circumcised. And the very passage that our Presbyterian friends use to equate baptism and circumcision is the very passage that, that, that most clearly shows the difference. Colossians 2. In him, in Christ, also you were, past tense, aorist tense, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's speaking to those who've already repented, who've already had their hearts circumcised. Okay, So in him you were, right? having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You already were circumcised. When did that take place? When you had faith. The assumption here is that those who were baptized already have faith and they've already been circumcised. 
So to say, oh, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they circumcised babies, therefore you should baptize babies, it misses the whole point. The point of circumcision in, in the Old Testament is this, this is a sign that calls you to do something. Repent. In the New Testament, baptism is a sign of something you've already done. Repented. Circumcised your heart. One is calling you to do something in the future. One is calling you to do something because your heart's already been circumcised. What's the point? Have you been baptized as a believer? I was baptized as a baby. What's that have to do with anything? Does it save you? Nope, doesn't save you. But no commandment saves you. You're saved by what Christ did for you. And go back to the first point with Abraham. Because you're in Christ, you should walk blameless before him. Because you're in Christ and he has circumcised your heart, you should get baptized. Have you been baptized? Let me know if you would like to be baptized. So, sum it up. We are the spiritual seed of Abraham. We who have placed our faith uh, in Christ. We are part of the unconditional covenant. Just as Abraham had faith, he believed in God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. You are in Christ unconditionally, not by anything you do. The physical seed of Abraham placed under the law is an illustration of what happens when people try to be accepted by works. It doesn't work. You get kicked out of the land. I hope you're not trusting in your works to save you. I hope you've looked at your works and said, I'm pretty bad. I'm a pretty bad worker of works. What can I do to be saved? Good news, Christ died for you. Trust in him and him alone. Right? And then, last point. Baptism is the fulfillment of what circumcision points to. Circumcision is a sign calling people to circumcise their hearts. Baptism is a sign for those whose hearts have been circumcised. All right, let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord, we have covered an awful lot today, and I pray that you would enable us to sort out that which matters most your unconditional promises, what circumcision points to, our need to have our hearts cleansed, the cross where our sins were paid for. And Lord, I pray that you would move those who need to be baptized, not for salvation, but in obedience, to take that step of obedience And Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that we are not under the condemnation of the law because you took that curse in our place on the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.